We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 49. Our guest today is one of the most recognized show jumping athletes to date. She is also ranked in the top 15 for FEI Jumping World Cup standings. She has an incredible heart for giving back, has an amazing son, and she is just a breath of fresh air. I have so much respect for this girl. We had a real and raw conversation. I am so excited for you to hear about it. I also used a lot of the questions that you send in to me that you wanted me to ask her. So without further ado, let's hear it from our guest, Georgina Bloomberg. I am so excited that you're on. I want to totally pick your brain and hear all about how you got to where you are today. So let's take it all the way back. How did you first get into the horse world? What did that look like for you? So I started riding when I was four years old. My mother grew up in England and she was always surrounded by horses and rode a little bit herself. And then my older sister wanted to start riding. My mother wanted to have some lessons with her and I just sort of wanted to do everything they were doing. So I started taking some lessons. Um, I actually did not like it in the beginning. I was terrified, but thankfully I was very stubborn as well, um, which outweighed my fear. So I refused to give up and I stuck with it, even though I hated it and was scared every single time I got on a horse. And I remember the first time I showed, I was about six years old. I did a walk trot class and I came in dead last. And I remember hating the feeling of losing and deciding that I really wanted to go home and work hard and figure out how I could go back to my next horse show and fix that. And then I remember, I remember the feeling of going in on my first horse show and winning my first blue ribbon. And I was hooked. I just, you know, I love the horses and I love riding. And I think really every person who competes and does this successfully has to have started with that passion. But I really, really love the competition. You know, I love working hard at home and then being in front of a crowd and showing that off. Mm -hmm, Totally. What was the big fear? You know, I don't know. Uh, I think just being a little kid, I was, you know, didn't like, you know, the feeling of being out of control or maybe I was afraid of falling. I'm, I'm not really yeah. sure why I'm scared. I know I just didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. So then you got to the point where you're like, okay, I'm about the blue ribbons. Like that's, that's great. I, <laughs> let's, let's kind of go this route. So then once you were kind of hooked, what did it look like for you as far as your show schedule? Kind of what were you doing? Where were you going? Um, at what point were you getting some new horses? What did that kind of process look like for you? You know, when I was a, a kid, I was really lucky. I had a wonderful trainer who um, just really instilled so many important life lessons in her students. You know, it was never about getting parents to buy multiple ponies or even the nicest pony or spending money. Um, it was just about really teaching kids how to ride, how to take care of ponies at the barn and how to love the sport. And, you know, I had a wonderful experience growing up riding with her and with so many other kids at the barn um, where we were literally just dropped off at the barn and we were, you know, we had to muck our horses stalls out. We had yeah. to take care of them. We went on trail rides. We stayed there all day making friends, you know, with people from all walks of life. And, you know, she really, really taught us good lessons. It was never about anything more than that. And 
know, we got to go to horse shows, but I never had fancy ponies. I always had my sister's hand-me-downs. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, a lot of kids these days have you know these fancy ponies that everyone's spending big money on. They have multiple ponies. And that just didn't exist when I was a kid. Um, and I, I'm really grateful for that because I think it really taught me how to ride. It taught me how to appreciate things. And it also taught me how to be a gracious loser. You know, I think that I've always said that's the biggest thing in this sport to learn how to handle because the best rider in the world is always going to lose more classes than they're going to win. And if you can't handle losing in the sport, you will not make it. That's a really good point. I mean, it's something that all of us have to go through. And so it's, it's yeah. something that we have to figure out. And yeah, I think yeah, I never, you know, when I was a kid, I never really had a lot of talent. Um, I never had natural talent. I really had to work hard at it. And I've always, I've really been grateful for that because, you know, I didn't, was not one of these kids that went, you know, straight out of the gate and started winning everything. You know, I really had to figure out how to do it. But in the meantime, I learned that, you know, losing is okay. And, you know, it's about more than that. Yeah. So what are some things that you did that really kind of helped you step it up? Um, you know, we do a lot of work at home. You know, I did back then and I do still now. Um, a lot of, you know, rails on the ground, Cavaletti's work because I don't consider myself to have natural talent. I know that I can't just go from show to show to show and be successful. You know, I have to put in my work at home. Um, and so we do a lot of that, keeping my eye working, making sure that, you know, horses have a good relationship with me. You know, I, I think that, you know, anybody at the top level works very, very hard. Um, but I've always thought that I had to work, you know, in certain ways, a little bit harder to be able to compete against certain people who have talent. You know, I've never been blessed with that, but I always been blessed with, you know, a determination to want to work hard. Um, and like I said, you know, the ability to say, listen, today was a bad day, but I'm gonna try again tomorrow. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that kind of brings me to the idea of you were talking about, you know, keeping your eye sharp. That's something that especially at the height and the level that you compete at, that needs to be on. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be ideal. So what is, what are some things that you do to really keep that eye sharp and for that confidence that when you're in the ring, you know that you are going to be approaching at a jump with confidence and you're going to make it work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that doesn't always happen. There's, there's sometimes we're going to a big jump and you just don't see a distance and you just pray that it works out. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Right. Um, but you know, with the amount of jumps that we jump on a given day in the show ring at home, not every jump is going to be perfect. Not every, you're not going to meet every jump, you know, correctly or how you planned. Uh, but it's sort of how you deal with that. You know, there's going to be times where it's a disaster and either you stop, fall off, you know, crash through it. It happens to everybody. It happens to Beezy. It happens to McLean. It happens to Ken. It happens to people. But a lot of the time it's how you deal with that. And it's, you know, sort of relates back to how you deal with failure of losing a class or, you know, not succeeding, not winning. Life doesn't always hand you the best situation, but sometimes you have to learn how to deal with it. And that, you know, is going to decide the outcome. Um, and I think a lot of people, when you, you know, meet a big ox or the wrong step or thing, not the way you wanted, if you sit back and you're afraid or you, you, know, you give up, you're not going to make it to the other side. Right. Sometimes if you dig hard in and you grab on and you do your best to get to the other side, sometimes it works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So you were establishing your role as a rider, getting more experience, showing. At what point were you like, you know what? I want to keep going with this. I want to like seriously have this a big part of my life. So I actually, I, I'd always done a lot of art growing up. Um, I, I almost went to art school and I had applied to an art school that I really wanted to go to and didn't get in. Um, I think, you know, rightfully so. I don't think I had the portfolio to back it up. And as much as I loved art, I hadn't really put in the work that I knew other students who were being accepted into this art school had put in. And I decided that I really, you know, wanted to take that opportunity and not necessarily sit there and feel sorry for myself, but concentrate on something else. And between art and writing, there were the two things that I've always really loved. And 
you know, was good at and enjoyed doing. And so I knew that I wanted to really, you know, give my all. Um, I went to NYU in part so that I could continue my riding at home and continue with my trainer and, um, you know, keep that going a little bit and have sort of, you know, my classes, but also have my riding life. And, um, it was at that time that I really got serious about it. Um, you know, I had just done the North American Young Rider Championships and, you know, really saw a future in the sport. Um, when I made my first team to go to Europe and compete, um, it was when I really had my eyes open as to what the sport could be. And, you know, the idea of being able to ride for my country and, you know, sort of see what the sport is outside of America, um, was something that was really, really influential in my decision to make this my profession. Mm-hmm. When you were kind of putting together this training program for yourself and, and creating your own business, what did that look like for you in terms of horses and location and kind of the pieces that you pulled from people that were influential in your life to create your own program? You know, I think every every top rider in every barn, their system is going to be different. You know, there's some people who enjoy buying and selling. There's some people who enjoy training. There's some people who only want to show and want to live off the prize money. Um, you know, I think you, you won't find two riders out there that do it exactly alike. Um, and then, you know, you factor in the fact you know, there's always other influences as far as family and other commitments in life. Um, and I knew that I never really wanted to give up other things in my life. You know, I, I want to do this sport and I want to compete at the top level, but I also want to have a life and, you know, I'm a mother and um, there's other things that are important to me. And I'm never going to be, you know, at Ken Farrington, I'm never going to be able to be number one in the world because the amount that you have to commit yourself and show and be traveling, you really can't do other things that I really wanted to, to go ahead and do. Um, you know, I have a great amount of respect for the, the riders who are able to do it, but everyone's going to be different they're all doing different things, you know, they're all successful in different ways. Um, so for me, it was about sort of figuring out what I wanted to do most. I know that I've never really been a good trainer. I have enough trouble figuring out this sport myself. So I knew training was something that I just didn't want to do. I'm also not great at buying and selling because I get very attached to the horses. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, anybody will tell you that, you know, if you get attached to the horses, you're not going to be very financially successful in that, in that regard in the sport. You really can't. Um, but they've always just, you know, been more than, you know, a vehicle to get a blue ribbon on for me. Um, so in that way, I've never been really successful. So it really came down to competing because that was sort of what was left. And, Competing is what I love to do. Will it make me tons of money? No. I mean, that's not where the money comes from in this sport. But, you know, I've sort of had to figure out other ways, whether it's with sponsors or, you know, other deals to be able to get to sort of at least break even and to be able to keep going and to feel like I can, you know, support myself and make this all worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point that literally any professional program that you look at does look different. And the kind of the the stereotype that I love that's being talked about more is the idea that a professional in the industry doesn't have to be a rider, a trainer, a you know, a sales yeah. uh, person. Yeah. It can really be depending on what you like and what you mm-hmm. um, want to put time towards. Um, yeah, I've always said, you know, the you know people are very quick to obviously you know, think that the people who are number one in the world or who are winning the Grand Prix are the most successful or the ones we should all be cheering on. But it, it really, I mean, all those riders will tell you that there are so many people behind that victory or, you know, that ranking or whatever it is. And, you know, I've always had more respect for people who say, listen, I might not be, you know, a great rider, but I can be a great manager or a great groom or a great trainer. Um, and so many people just have to pick something that they really enjoy and are good at. And that's not always being a Grand Prix rider and getting the recognition and the big ring. Um, I think that's what, you know, so many riders want to be when they grow up. And, you know, these kids sort of think like, I want to, you know, be a grand career or this and that. There's so many other ways to be successful and to be happy in the sport. And you really have to figure out 
what you're good at and what you love. Right. Yeah. Otherwise it's, I mean, there's no way you're going to be able to keep going with it because there's so much that goes into it. I mean, kind of along the same lines, you have a lot of other things going on in your life. You have a son, which Mm -hmm. how, how was that for you? I mean, was that with riding and with that whole transition of going into motherhood, how did that go for you with, uh, between that and your riding? You know, thankfully I um, am accident prone and have had a lot of injuries in the past or I've had to take time off of riding. So therefore I was sort of used to the idea of having to take a period of time off and then come back. Um, you know, it wasn't the first time that I'd had to, you know, not ride for a few months and then they could come back sure. um, from, you know, basically starting from scratch. So when I did come back, you know, after having him, you know, I, it obviously took a little bit of time. I think I was more forgiving with myself just because, you know, obviously for the first time in the world, there was something more important than my riding. And, you know, it uh, helped put everything into perspective. Um, I wanted to be a good mother, you know, first and foremost, and anything else that I had time for was just a bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had a whole new appreciation for my body. Um, you know, I, it was something that, you know, you, once you've, you know, given birth to a child, you think, wow, that's amazing. I created this. And this is, you know, something that, that my body has done. And I think you are more forgiving with yourself and, more appreciative and you know you, you have more awareness of what you're putting into your system and you know the way you treat yourself and I felt healthier than ever I felt stronger than ever and I think just mentally I had you know a little bit more clarity um, in what was important and what I wanted to do in life so when I came back I actually found that riding was something that I, I loved even more than ever um, but it also was a little bit easier actually to find the time to do it because when I rode, I was a hundred percent focused on that. And then when I went home, I really learned to tune things out where I wasn't able to do that before, you know, learning how to compartmentalize, you know, your thoughts is something that's really important to sport because it's such an emotional mental sport. Um, when you're in it, you have to really, really focus. And then it's really helpful actually to be able to go home at night and just to completely tune it out and to forget about it and to say, listen, I might've had a bad day or I might've knocked a couple rails down but you go home to your son or your child, wherever it is. And it's very hard to sit around and feel sorry for yourself. So um, I think that really helped me. Um, I obviously have less time to ride just because of him and my other commitments. And that's okay with me. You know, like I said, I, I'm not as hung up on what my ranking is or, um, you know, how many Grand Prix I win in a year. That's just less important to me. You know, I, I know that I'm not going to be able to, you know, compete sometimes against in ranking or in other ways against somebody who is doing this every single day and is only focused on their riding. But that's okay because I have a pretty amazing son who makes up for it. Yeah, totally. Which I have seen some pictures of him riding. (laughs) And what's the deal with that? Have you been kind of introducing him to the sport? What does he think about it? Yeah, you know, we had a little rescue mini who, um, you know, in the beginning he showed no interest in. It was uh, Christmas, not this past year, but the year before. Um, This pony had just been rescued from from a slaughter auction. And uh, I was thinking about adopting him. And I asked him if he wanted a pony. Um, He said he was sitting there with a monster truck playing. And he said, no, I'm okay. And I said, what? I said, you're the only kid in America that doesn't want a pony for Christmas. Right. I said, you're getting a pony. So <laughs> adopted him. Um, and I figured, you know, listen, even if he doesn't want to ride, it, it'll teach him to take care of an animal and to be able to be around the barn. It's good for him to learn how to bathe him, to groom him, to you know, pick out his feet, take him for a trail ride. Um, so it really started like that. And then he outgrew him and another little pony became available for lease. He started taking some lessons and he just really fell in love with it. Um, and, you know, in the beginning... I would sort of ask him, like, do you want to go and ride today? And say, sure. And now he actually asks when he's riding. 
he brags about it. He wants to see videos of himself. Um, you know, he, he's competitive like I was at that age. Um, and I think once he starts competing and actually getting to horse shows, uh, I see him really, really wanting to do this more and more. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, speaking of rescues, I had heard that the, um, the Palm Beach Animal Care and Control mm-hmm. had, like, for the first time, completely uh, emptied its kennels during, during uh, this COVID time. Which... It's, um, you know, it's actually it's a, a shelter that's near and dear to my heart. That's where I rescued my first dog back in 2008. Wow. Um, first experience actually going into a pound. Um, and I'll never forget it. And so it's, it's a place that will always be a part of my heart. It's where I found the love of my life. who was Hugo who passed away this past summer. Mm. Um, but I had him for 11 years and he was just the most amazing animal. Um, so I've always, you know, thought they've done a wonderful job, you know, being in a shelter situation like that, the people who work there usually don't get any credit. They never get a pat on the back. They're always sort of made to be the villains because occasionally they're going to have to euthanize. Um, but unfortunately that's not their fault. You know, they don't want to be doing that, but when you know all the kennels are full and more dogs are coming in, they have no choice. Um, and they do a lot with very little funding with very little community help. Um, you know, if people aren't going to spay and neuter and they're going to go and buy dogs, dogs are going to end up in pounds. Um, and these people who work at pumping channel care control have, you know, for many, many years never gotten much credit. And it was really wonderful to see them, you know, be able to get a little bit of credit and to get a pat on the back once in a while. Yeah. I mean, when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's so exciting. That's so great. I mean, that's something that out of this really unfortunate and stressful time in a lot of people's lives that that something really beautiful has come from it. With your passion for philanthropy, how did that begin? What kind of made you decide to focus in on certain areas and and how did that all come to be for you? You know, um, it was really instilled in us very early on the importance of getting back. Um, and it sounds very cliche, but I think, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, should be instilled in children and, um, you know, it's a parent's job to make that idea important, but I think it's up to the, the child themselves, to the person themselves to decide what that's going to look like and what's important to them. Um, that's not something that you can pick for your child. That's something that they're going to pick and it's going to come to them. And for me, I've always loved animals. Um, sure. My parents always loved animals and had us around animals, but they couldn't predict probably that I was going to take this turn and really make this my life mission to help so many and to to really work so hard to change things in the world for them. Um, and that was something that really developed gradually. You know, I loved animals. I realized that I wasn't doing anything really positive for them or to help them. Started looking into ways where I could possibly do that. That led me obviously actually to the Palm Beach Animal Care and Control to adopt a dog and then that experience, um, it really just, um, you know, it had sort of a domino effect for me. I, I went there, I realized that, you know, this particular dog was very lucky. He was getting out with me, but there were thousands more that were going to enter that place over the years that were not going to get out of there. And I made it my mission to try to understand, number one, how dogs end up in there, um, how we can change that and learning about the different things. So I learned about the importance of spay neuter. I lear- learned about um, you know, the shelter system in the U.S. and how many dogs are euthanized and why dogs end up there. Um, and I also learned about puppy mills and how we can change that because it's a whole chain effect. You know, there's not just one reason why dogs enter pounds or euthanized. There's so many different aspects to understand. Um, and I found that just the more I learned, the more passionate I became. Um, so it was just sort of like a big hole where I just kept digging myself deeper and deeper and deeper with the more information that I knew. Um, but I think, you know, it's obviously we've still got a long way to go, but I'm really proud of every dog that I get out of a pound or get into a home. You have to sort of stop and give yourself a pat on the back because you're not going to be able to save them all. That doesn't take away the importance of saving as many as you possibly can. 
Mm-hmm. Totally. Tell me a little bit about the writer's closet. Um, so that actually came from an idea that I had when I started at NYU. I became friends with a girl who um, we were at lunch one day. She said how much she loved riding and how she'd ridden growing up. And I asked her if she was going to join the equestrian team. And she said she would love to, but she couldn't because she couldn't afford the riding clothing. And it was something that really, you know, sort of resonated with me because about a year before I'd actually been at a house that my family was selling and found a closet full of my riding clothes that I'd outgrown. And because I'm the youngest of the family, um, those riding clothes had sort of stopped with me and hadn't gone anywhere. Yeah. And they were sort of like a lot of kids' clothes where they were for a few months and outgrow them. And, you know, with other clothing, you know where to take it or you can find somewhere to donate to. With riding clothing, I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and obviously, you know, I had just started college. So I was at the age where I had a lot of other friends who had stopped riding and gone off to school. And I asked around a few people what they were doing and everybody was sort of in the same boat. And, you know, they didn't know what to do with riding clothing they didn't want anymore. And, you know, obviously because we were all sort of young, you know, a lot of it was in very good condition, hadn't been, been worn that much. And I sort of was thinking about this girl who so wanted to be able to ride on a team but couldn't because she didn't have the clothing. And I thought of all my friends who had given up riding to go to college and weren't weren't riding college. Um, And I really tried to figure out how to just connect those two dots. Um, And so I reached out to a good friend of mine who was on an equestrian team already, asked him if he would talk to his coach and see if anybody on the team needed help. Um, And then he sort of spoke to a few different people and got the word out to different schools. And so it started actually just with universities and colleges, getting the word out, me collecting riding clothing from friends and from anybody at horse shows that, you know, would give me anything they had. Um, You know, whether it was a pair of britches here or a shirt there, whatever it was, I was collecting things in in my mother's garage, packing up boxes myself and would just send boxes out to universities that said they needed some. Um, And then, you know, after a few months, I started getting letters from people um, saying they're not part of an equestrian team, not at school, but they really need boots. They need this or that. They can't afford it. Could I help them out? And so it just really grew from there. Um, and so now, you know, we're also much bigger than just doing universities. We do, you know, individual requests all the time. We still do a lot of universities. We do therapeutic riding programs. Um, we shift all over the world. And um, we have our own space now. I have, you know, a full-time employee. Um, and it's just been really wonderful to to see the impact of, you know, just being able to have people write us letters and say, you know, having a jacket that fit or boots that, you know, looked like everybody else's gave me confidence to be able to do this and do that. And it's, you know, it's obviously I'm not going out there. I'm not saving the world. I'm, you know, I'm not feeding starving children. I get that. It's something that, you know, is my way of giving back to the sport. Um, and it was something that I saw a need for and I figured out how to, to fill that need. So cool. I mean, yeah. And it's, it's wild to think like in that situation of that friend that that was, that was what was holding her back. And so in in a way, like you are like, that is changing lives for people. I mean, and, and only equestrians can, you know, fully understand and appreciate that. So that's, that's really cool. Thank you so much to our sponsor today, Sam Shield America, who keeps Georgina's head and my head safe while in the saddle. Sam Shield perfectly combines a young pro rider's needs, designer's creative energy, and engineer's technical vision. Sam Shield's philosophy is to always provide advanced products in terms of active and passive security, comfort, hygiene material, and finish quality, as well as customization. Right now, the Equestrian Aid Foundation 
Foundation and Sam Shield America are joining efforts to support the equestrian industry in this challenging time. Sam Shield America will donate 20% of its sales each week to the Equestrian Aid Foundation Disaster Relief Fund to assist in the continued aid for our sport. You can participate and support this great cause by using the promo code EAF. COVID-19. That's E-A-F-C-O-V-I-D-1-9 on samshieldamerica.com. Thank you so much, Sam Shield. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Well, I have a few questions based from listeners of the podcast that really wanted to ask you a few questions. So (laughs) let's do a little rapid fire session. Um, So right off the bat, how has COVID affected your business practices at your barn? Um, so thankfully it's, it's actually just me and my work rider at the barn. Um, I don't have customers coming in and out, which has been obviously very good at this time. Um, we don't have any leasing stalls. We don't have anybody coming in. It doesn't you know, work here every day anyway. Everybody is, you know, obviously paying more attention to keeping a distance, washing hands, sanitizing things. We have somebody walking around pretty much all day cleaning things. Um, and that's really it. But it is, you know, obviously much easier for us having a private facility than somebody who has clients coming in. Um, and then, you know, obviously just, you know, sort of giving the horses a little bit of time off and understanding that, like I said, we need to keep them in work, but at the same time, you know, we also want to give them a little bit of a break if we can. Yep. Totally. Um, what is a week leading up to a big horse show look like for you for training your horses? So, you know, we do a lot of Cavaletti work at home. Um, we don't jump a ton at home. We really try to save that for the ring and save that for horse shows, but we do do a lot of Cavaletti work. So, you know, when we're at home in New York, we're um, thankfully around an area that's very hilly. So we do a lot of hill work, getting sort of their hind end working, getting muscles going. Um, it's almost like being on a natural treadmill for them. Um, so we do a lot of that out there. It's also good for their minds, like a trail ride for them. So um, we do a lot of that. And then at home, we do a lot of, you know, sort of rail work, flat work work at Cavaletti's, getting the horses to listen to us. Um, and then, you know, depending on the horse show, if it's going to be on a grass field, we'll make sure that we jump on our grass field, um, jump a few of the natural obstacles that might be there, practice a water jump. If it's indoors, obviously ride indoors. I think that for the horse and rider, it's really important to know what environment you're going into at the horse show and then prepare in that way. So if you're going to an indoor horse show, you don't ride in the big grass field to get ready for it. You really need to get, you know, the horse and rider used to that situation because horses go very differently in different rings. Mm-hmm. What does your everyday routine look like? So, I mean, obviously right now it's a, it's a bit different, I think for everybody, but you know, on a given day down here, we're competing a lot. So Mondays, obviously you're off mixed with errands and pleasure and trying to you know figure out a way to, to relax and to, to also get things done. Um, Tuesdays we train, we ride a little bit in the morning and get the horses ready for the week ahead. You know, like I said, it depends on what the horse show is going to be. If it's going to be on the derby field, if there's going to be a water jump, whatever that is, that's really our day to prepare. Um, so I think it's important to look at the schedule for the show ahead and to really know what to expect. You know, you need to know if there is going to be a derby class or water jump or naturals or, you know, speed class, you have to prepare for these things. Um, and that will really determine on what we do on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, depending on when the show starts. So, you know, I do, I work out a lot. So that's something that's important to me. I make a point of taking the time to work out and to get myself ready um, mentally and physically. That's something that's really important to me. You know, you can have your horses be hundred percent prepared in every single way, but if you're not ready and your head's not in the game or you're, you know, 
nursing an injury or not physically fit, you know, it's, it's a waste of time to have the horse ready. You know, you're a big part of it as an athlete. And so, you know, every day is a bit different when we're, when we're preparing for a horse show. Um, but I think it's, it's always, it's always a, a plan. There's always, you know, thought put into whatever we do. And we are always looking ahead, whether it's to that next day, next week, next month. Um, we're always having a plan for the horses. Do you have horse show nerves? And do you have any advice for people who do have nerves for horse shows? I've always, you know, been pretty good with nerves. You know, I do get nervous, but I've always sort of been able to turn that into a positive. I've never been somebody, thankfully, who's sort of been crippled by nerves, um, who locks up or who can't go out and perform. Um, when I was a kid, I loved performing in front of a crowd, you know, whether it was just, you know, making a funny face in front of a camera or, you know, performing something. Um, I always sort of enjoyed going out in front of people and having people, you know, pay attention to whatever I was doing. Uh, I've also never been afraid of making a fool of myself. So I think that's, you know, a huge help. And I think that that's yeah. like sort of the number one thing in calming nerves is realizing that anybody in any crowd that you're going to go out and mess up in front of hasn't seen anything, you know, that, you know, you're not going to show them anything they haven't seen and they're not going to judge you for it. And, you know, every rider in the world goes out and makes a big mistake, whether it's, you know, missing a distance or falling off or, you know, whatever it is, you've sort of seen every single rider out there do it. Maybe, you know, the best riders in the world don't do it as much as some of the, the, you know, the less quality riders, but at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's really helpful to really watch everybody and to say, wow, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, so-and-so could miss a distance or, you know, wasn't perfect. Um, and so I think for me, I've really turned my nerves into, into a way of concentrating, um, getting myself a little bit more focused. Uh, if I'm not nervous at all, um, I usually don't ride very well. Um, I usually sort of, um, need to use my nerves to make me really pay attention and try a little bit harder. Yeah. How did you handle riding or competing while you were pregnant? Um, so, you know, I rode for the first couple of months, which was obviously, you know, a bit of a, a controversial decision. Um, I was very careful in what I did. I was very careful in the horses that I rode and, you know, the decisions that I made, I, I definitely wasn't, you know, running my fastest in a speed class or, you know, jumping young horses. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of those things that now, you know, having my son and knowing what was in my stomach, I probably would not go back and make that decision again. You know, I think if, if I, you know, am pregnant with my second child, I probably would stop riding right away. Um, and it does not change or make me regret my decision back then to keep riding, you know, for the first couple of months. You know, I understand why I made that decision and what my thoughts were. Um, thankfully, it all turned out okay. But I do think now, obviously, having more of a connection with, you know, realizing what was actually, you know, in me um, and the person that my son is, I would not make that same decision again. and would probably be a bit more careful um, with the next one. Hmm. Do you have a favorite horse that you have been able to ride during your career? Um, you know, I've been really lucky to have some, some awesome horses that have competed at the top level, but also that I've really loved having around at the barn. You know, two that, that really stick out to me um, are Diplomacy, who is my large junior hunter. He was really the first really nice horse that I had. Um, you know, like I said, I never really had the nicest ponies and, you know, they always were either you know not fancy or had an issue or were difficult to ride. And diplomacy was not an easy horse to ride in any means, but he was the first horse that I ever had that if you went out and you tried your hardest and you performed well, 
you were going to win every single time out. Uh, but at the same time, if you, you know, really worked hard and you deserve to win, he was going to reward that every single time out. The other horse was Action, who was probably my first jumper. Um, and he was never going to be a Grand Prix horse. He was never, you know, had the most scope or was the, the best quality. But he tried his best every single time out and was one of those horses that was just all heart and would have gone down to any jump that you asked him to. Um, won many, many classes for me um, in the amateurs at sort of the meter 40 level. And was just one of those horses that, you know, you just sort of knew he was doing the very best with what he had. Um, and he wasn't a natural scopey horse, but he was always trying his best. What is it like to be a sponsored rider for Sam Shield? And what are some of your favorite things of Sam Shield that you get to wear? You know, I'd always loved the helmets. Um, I think obviously now that we're all very concerned with safety and you know, there are certain aspects of what we put on our bodies when we're riding that are more important than they were back in the day when I was a junior rider, when I was a pony rider, and it was sort of more about style. And now all of a sudden, you know, thankfully we're noticing more and we know more and we you can, can sort of protect ourselves better. And what I've loved about Samuel for a long time is that you have that protection for your head, um, but it also looks pretty. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, to me, the only helmet out there that's really combining the two where you feel like you are safe and you're getting the best technology around something that is so incredibly important, like your head, but you don't have to sacrifice fashion for that. Um, so I think Sam Shield has done a wonderful job with that. I think they've also done a wonderful job with their clothing that they're doing. Um, everything that you put on, you feel like it's just really you know, high tech and, you know, really functional, but also looks really good. Um, so I think it's been an amazing company and a great addition to the show role. Which helmet do you ride in? So I have one of them out as well, Sam Shield ones. Um, I think it's really nice to have sort of the extra protection for your skin um, when you're riding because we're out in the sun so much. So I think that's really been a wonderful addition to have a helmet that's really just for women, I think has been really awesome. Um, and then I have some of the, just the normal ones that, you know, I use if it's, an indoor horse show or not sunny out or doing a night class. So I've had a a couple of them, them. And um, I just, you know, like I said, I think it's really nice to have a helmet that, you know, you're proud to put on that you think actually looks good. Yeah. I love the same shield helmets. They're my favorite too. The next question is, do you have a favorite horse show memory that sticks out? Um, you know, it's mixed for me because my favorite horse show of all time is the Old Salem May shows. Um, that's, you know, Old Salem is where I grew up riding. Um, so I have so many memories and our farm was just down the street. So, um, for me, as far as a horse show goes, that's my favorite. And I think it probably, you know, one of my favorite memories was winning the Grand Prix there for the first time. You know, it was sort of a lifelong dream for me when I was a kid. I remember going and watching the Grand Prix there and, um, you know, dreaming of being in there and, and wanting so much to be like those riders. And, I think my first time winning the Grand Prix there was one of those moments where I, you know, sort of looked around and was looking at the kids that are sitting there on the hill watching me and, you know, thinking back to how much I wanted to be that person in the ring and to go out there and to finally win it was something that was just one of the most meaningful victories that I think I'll ever have in my career. Yeah. Wow. That's super special. How do you stay motivated if you feel like you've hit a wall or you're kind of lacking inspiration? Um, you know, I don't always, and I think that's okay. And I think that's actually something that's really important is that there are going to be times, especially in this sport, because it's a sport that is pretty much year round. Um, and you know, you're going to have a lot of bad classes. You're going to have more bad classes than you are good classes. You're going to have a lot of challenging days. And I think it's okay sometimes to just sort of say that you are unmotivated and sometimes you need a break. Sometimes your horse needs breaks. Sometimes you need some time just away from horse shows and it's not always going to be there. You know, I am so grateful to be able to do what I love and to do what I wanted to do since I was a kid. 
But that doesn't mean that every single day I wake up and I'm excited to go to the barn. doesn't mean that every day I wake up and I'm excited to go to a horse show. Um, you know, that's not always there. And that's okay. I think you're going to have days where you question it. And sometimes you have to look at yourself and say, maybe I just need a week off. Maybe a person's a week off. Or maybe, you know, you just need to reevaluate. Maybe you need just to, to focus on something else. It's not always going to be there. And I think that's okay. Yeah, great advice. Do you have any tips for learning new horses? I think that doing rails on the ground and cavalletti work at home is really the most important tool. Um, it takes me a very long time to get to know horses and it's not something that comes easily for me. You know, it really, until I get to sort of a year mark with a horse, I can't say that I fully know them. And even then sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure about them. So I think that, you know, doing, you know, rails on the ground, spacing rails at different distances, leaving strides out, adding, doing some clockwork and doing different strides between each part of the clock is something that's very important. Uh, I think that's something that's really important for me and my horses. Um, and then I think just obviously getting the experience and getting in the ring and showing, you know, sometimes there are some horses that are very different at home than they are in the show ring. The environment can change them. Some horses just rise to the occasion are very different. I have some horses that at home jump terribly and you get to the horse show and they're jumping out of their skin and they just know And so I think that it's sort of a mix, but it takes time and it's not something that just comes naturally. You know, when you see, let's say, you know, BZ Madden in the ring with a new Grand Prix horse, there's so much more that went into that before that. I can guarantee you she had that horse for months in advance and that she was jumping, you know, meter 20, meter 30 for months before she was going anywhere near that Grand Prix ring. It's just that you're not seeing that. And um, I think a lot of people think, oh, you go out and you spend money on a horse and you go straight into Grand Prix and you win. And it's not like that for anybody. It doesn't matter on how much you spent on the horse or if you are as a rider. It didn't work that way. There was a lot of work and time and effort that went into getting to know that and getting into the Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Do you have a specific long-term goal with show jumping? Um, you know, I think obviously to be able to check off the Olympics would be an amazing thing. Um, but it's also tricky in our sport. You know, it's... It's very difficult to make the team. I think a lot of riders are very lucky if they ever have an Olympic level horse at all in their career, let alone on the right year at the right time. And there are so many talented riders in our sport who have accomplished so much, but who might never get to the Olympics. And I think this is one of the sports where, you know, it's, you're not defined by whether you've been to the Olympics or not. Um, And so many other sports you are, and maybe rightfully so. I think in our sport, the idea that you have polar factor and that you have a horse and a live animal, you know, that has to rise to the occasion and be able to be an Olympian as well. Um, and then you yourself and you know, the horse all have to come together and peak at the right time. And then also, you know, obviously in America, there's such a large pool of talent here. Um, there are some other countries where, you know, it's maybe very easy to make the Olympic team in, in some ways. In America, it's very difficult with a lot of talented horses, a lot of talented riders, and a lot of people who are deserving to make the Olympics. Um, so it's something that I'd love to check off my list, but it definitely at this point will not define my career if I don't make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then my question that I like to ask all of my guests is, is there an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously with my work with animal activism, um, the idea of where horses go after this is something that I'm very passionate about and have tried to become more and more involved in because I think a lot of riders 
struggle with what to do with their partners when they can no longer jump for them. You know, it's something that is a struggle for a lot of people. Retiring a horse is very expensive and some horses don't want to necessarily fully retire. Um, you know, we have given a horse to, to different college programs where they're so well taken care of and so loved and they get updates every day and they're so much happier than they would have been if they were just living in a field doing nothing. Um, not every horse, just because they can't jump at the top level doesn't mean that they need to retire. But some horses who do need to retire don't have a place to go and people don't have a place to put them. So I think it's a, it's a big struggle. I think people are sometimes not great about selling horses and then not knowing what hands they're going to end up in. And I think that in our industry, a lot of people aren't aware that um, you know, horse slaughter is something that our horses are in danger of. This is not something that just exists outside of our world. There are many show jumpers that get sold to the wrong hands and gets passed on and gets passed on. And they can end up at slaughterhouses as well. Um, it happens all the time. And it's something that we all need to be aware of. And it's easier said than done to always stay on top of where horses are going. You know, if I sell a horse to somebody, I don't always know where they're selling that horse on to or what they're doing with that horse. But I do my best. And uh, I think just being aware and trying to keep track of the horses and make sure that every time you buy a horse, you have to make sure that you know what you're going to do with that horse. If that horse were to not be able to jump tomorrow or not be able to serve you tomorrow, you have to have a plan. And it's, it's you know, sometimes easier said than done. But I think that that's sort of part of the industry that um, I struggle with morally and with trying to come up with a solution for because so many people really don't know what to do with horses when they need to retire them or can't jump. But also there are some people who are just very bad about it and don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of people need to understand that when you are making that initial investment into a horse, it's for their lifetime. Maybe you can't afford the retirement process, but researching and making sure that you're finding a good home right from the get-go, I think is so important and something that would be very good for our industry if more and more people were doing it that way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Georgina, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I am so happy that you came on and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.